If you have your Bible with you, go ahead and open up to John chapter 5. Uh, we've already read it this service, but we will be in John 5, verses 30 through 47. Now, as we start, and we're going to go into this, I'm going to ask for your help in this message that I'm going to ask you to em employ your imagination. That we're going to be doing this, but I don't want us to think about hearing this message in the context of a church. I want us to think of ourselves in a courtroom. To imagine that all of this message, the setting of this, is happening in a court of law. Now, I've never actually been in a courtroom, but I think that I have some idea of what, what goes on because of this thing called courtroom TV. This drama thing. Now, when I, when I came up from Brazil, the first one, some of the first times, and we didn't really have a TV in Brazil, but we had one here in the States, and we'd turn it on, and we would turn it on, and it would be one of these courtroom TV shows. And my first thought was, oh, there must be something happening. Maybe this is a really significant case to warrant being on TV. That was not the case as you start watching. No, it was just another form of reality TV. It was drama. That you get to see these two people arguing against each other and then someone making a verdict. I didn't really decide to watch it because I'm like, if I want to see that, I can just spend time with my family. Two people arguing and then someone making a verdict. That's normal. But, if, but because we've seen those, or maybe you've been in a courtroom, we have lawyers here who have been part of that, you know how it works. We can kind of imagine what this looks like, that there's some drama. Now, in our passage, in this story, we're going to kind of see this courtroom, this case, this trial unfold. And I want us to imagine what that's like. Now, if you're thinking of a courtroom, there's a couple of things that obviously trials can be different, but there's a few things that are consistent between different courtrooms. For example, what are the, what are the people or what are the roles that we would see in a courtroom? A judge, defendant, a jury, a prosecutor. Today, I want you to think about some of those roles of prosecutor, of defendant, of the judge. Okay, we're going to be thinking through that as we're going. Now, what are some of the other things that are common, though? Why are people in the courtroom in the first place? It's not because everything's going great. Something happened. There's been a problem. Maybe someone broke the law. There's an injustice. There's something that the people are saying, we need to figure this out. There's a problem that needs to be solved. Now, this isn't, though, a therapy session where you get two people who think that there's a problem, they go down, they sit on a couch, and then there's someone there, they talk about all their problems, and then they leave. No. What is the expectation after? Justice. A verdict. A decision will be reached. In our passage, we're at the last part of chapter 5, but really, chapter 5 is just one trial. That when we start, we have the beginning that there was something that happened. There was an occasion that someone thought was wrong, and then that thing went to trial. Now, if we were watching this, again, if we're imagining that this is kind of like the courtroom TV drama, this would be, this morning would be our third episode. This has been a long trial, and we're in our third episode. And so before we just jump straight into where we are this morning, there's almost, this is the part where I wish I had that, that cool voice that someone could say, and now, you know, last time on the Judean court. And then we would go through an update. That's kind of what we're going to do real quickly is just look back, see the case details, look at the case files, and see what's happened that's led us to right here. In the first part, when we looked at John, verses, uh, specifically verses 2 through 17, there was an occasion. Jesus comes to Jerusalem, and he seeks out the invalid, and he heals him. The word that it says, when we looked at this a couple weeks back, is that Jesus made him whole. He asked him, do you want to be healed? Do you want to be made whole? Whole. 
This man has been broken for 38 years. He has been struggling with his element, his sickness, for 38 years. Later in the passage, we see that the cause of his sickness was his own sin, which is not to say that all sickness is caused by sin, but there is sickness that is a result, a consequence of decisions. And this man, for 38 years, has been struggling with this, and for 38 years, he's been striving to fix his problem. But in that moment where Jesus comes, and this man, for 38 years, longer than my entire life, has been striving for this, Jesus heals him in an instant. Jesus tells him something, and instantly the man is made whole. The problem is that what we see is, first, Jesus makes an offer that he offers to make them whole, because the problem is that not only is this man broken, but he shows us he's a demonstration that the world is broken. If you look around you, this is not wholeness. The way we see the world now is not fixed the way it was meant to be. It's broken. The Jews that Jesus is coming to and talking to, Jerusalem, they all know that they're broken, but they already have their own solution. Just like the man, they're striving after their own way of fixing the problem. And for the Jews, that's works. For the Jews, it's following the law. For the Jews, it's a lack of physical idols. And so then there's the problem. There's the objection that the Jews have to Jesus. Because what did Jesus, when did Jesus do this miracle? On the Sabbath. Whoa. For the Jews, that's a big deal because he just broke the law. They're coming after Jesus because now, instead of what is Jesus claiming, Jesus is claiming to be the cure of our brokenness. But to the Jews, Jesus is the cause of the brokenness. They're looking and saying, you broke the Sabbath. You're the reason we're broken. We need to get rid of people like you who don't follow the law. And so you have this objection. Now at this moment in our court... What position is Jesus filling? He's the defendant. They're coming after Jesus. They're saying, you're guilty. You're not the cures. You're the curse. And so Jesus now is the defendant. Now, is he guilty? Absolutely not. But Jesus now is going to go, and what we saw last week from Stephen Page, is Jesus is going to give his rebuttal. He's going to go and give his defense of why it is that he did what he did. So the first thing we saw in the next portion, verses 18 through 29, Jesus' rebuttal is this, I'm God. That's a great defense. You know, if you're going to go into a court and someone's going to say, how dare you do this, a great defense would be, I'm God. That kind of gets you out of a lot of things. But why does Jesus give the rebuttal in the first place? Was it to get out of this whole situation and explain away the problem? Oh, no, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, guys. You, you didn't understand. Let me explain this. I, I don't want there to be a crisis. I don't want this to be awkward between us. So, so let me explain it. No, it wasn't to, to get out of that. There were easier ways to get out of it. He could have just said, so sorry. I won't do it on the Sabbath anymore. We'll, we'll avoid all of this. We can just get past this. You know what? My bad. Let, why, why can't we, as we've talked, let's just coexist. But no, he makes the issue so much worse. Their initial issue was that he did something on the Sabbath. But now he makes the issue way worse by claiming to be God. Now, instead of just breaking a law, he's a blasphemer. Did Jesus give the rebuttal to save himself? No. In fact, his claim is what ultimately is going to have him killed. He doesn't say it to save himself. The reason he gives the rebuttal is to save them. Jesus loves them. He loves us enough to tell us we are wrong and that the result of our actions leads to either life 
or death, salvation or condemnation. Jesus didn't have to protect himself. There was nothing they could do that would ultimately stop him. They had no power over him. But he gives his answer. He gives his rebuttal. He gives his defense, not for his sake, but for their sake. So that they could see how important the right response is. Because the reality is that Jesus is the giver of life. Jesus is the judge, both of the living and the dead. Last week, Stephen Page walked us through the passage where Jesus makes it very clear, this is who I am. You need me. I'm your only hope. That's why he doesn't coexist. That's why he makes it so clear, because how you give this answer, what your right response is, determines your future. It determines your reality. So that's what we've done. Okay, that's, that's the last time on the Judean court. That's what we, it's led to. But as we come into this passage, there's a problem for the Jews. If, the Jew, if Jesus is the defendant and, G, and the Jews are making a decision about Jesus, right now he's said some really incredible things. As Stephen said last time, he's made some big reveals. And they now have a big choice. Are they going to repent? Are they going to turn from what they thought was their salvation and place their faith in Jesus? Will they repent from that? Will they honor Jesus as God? Or will they keep going their direction? Now, in a case where someone comes and gives and and makes a claim for something, a big claim that changes the result of the entire trial, what would we expect there to be? Evidence. Proof. Hey, you just said all of these things. Now, technically, all of the things that Jesus said from 19 through 29, I could say those. Wouldn't be true, but I could say it. Many people, we're going to see later that there are people who are going to come that, are going, that the Jews will follow who aren't God, but they claim to be. What Jesus then gives in our third part now is evidence. Jesus is going to appeal to another authority. Jesus now is going to give a witness to his claim. This is what I said. Let me validate what I have said. Our big idea this morning is that God's witness of Jesus saves those who receive it, but condemns those who refuse him. God's witness of Jesus. That's what we're going to see in this passage. It saves those who receive it, but condemns those who refuse him. Let's look at verse 30 of chapter 5. This is kind of a transition, a continuation. Again, all of chapter 5 is one big passage. And so this is what it does. It kind of transitions from where we were last week. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just. Because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. He starts by saying, I can do nothing on my own. What was the Jewish claim against Jesus? Their problem is that they're looking at Jesus and they're saying he's a rogue Jew. He's kind of doing things on his own. He's going against the flow. This is not what it means to be a Jew. Jesus is counter to that. He's acting on his own. He's making claims with no foundation. And what Jesus is coming back to them and saying, no, I can do nothing on my own. Why not? Because Jesus and the Father are one. It's impossible for Jesus to work apart from God. Last week, Stephen made this abundantly clear when we looked at verse 19. Verse 19 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. I love what Stephen developed here is that we often read that verse wrong. Because we look at this and we see it as oppressive, as abusive, We think about about Christ's relationship with the Father as as cosmic child abuse. Oh, look at this. Man, Jesus can't do anything on his own. He can only do the things that God makes him do. Oh, man, that's child abuse. But that's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is pointing to the reality of their perfect 
relationship. They are in perfect harmony. Jesus is saying, I can do nothing on my own because that would never happen. I always do things in harmony with the Father. And the Jews... The Jews are making this claim, and they're making serious claims. In verse 18, we saw that this is why they were seeking all the more to kill him. This is a big deal for him. So Jesus is giving his defense, but he's also giving the evidence. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Last week, we asked the question, who is Jesus? And we talked about Jesus is the judge of the living and the dead. That's one of the roles that Christ has. He has that role. But he's not a crooked judge. He doesn't come to this world and just say, well, that guy kind of, ah. when we were kids, I remember that, that Bartholomew stole that, my toy. Oh, man, I'm going to judge him. We're going to get to a point where I'm going to just... No, that's not what Jesus is doing. He's not a crooked judge. He doesn't do things according to his own plan and, and out of spite. No, he does everything according to the will of the Father. All of this is according to God's plan. When we think about this element, that there's this truth that we might not think that God is a crooked judge, but how often do we act as if he's a crooked judge? You know, when we think about how can a good God send people to hell? No, this is, then he's, he's, he's crooked. But we, when we understand the reality of our position, how could a good God not condemn evil? See, the person that we would call a crooked judge is a crooked judge who has terrible people come before him and pardons them. That's what a crooked judge does. Jesus is not crooked because he sends people, he condemns people, because the reality is that is our position. The hope, though, is that does not need to be our reality. There is hope. There is a solution. The other thing, though, that we treat Jesus as a crooked, crooked judge is that we think we can bribe him. Oh, well, God's not going to judge me because I give at least 10% of my money to the church. God's not going to condemn me because I, I'm at church regularly. God's not going to condemn me because I'm, I'm a good person. We think that we can earn it. We can bribe him into that. But Jesus isn't crooked. He does everything according to the will of God of the Father. All of this is according to God's plan. So let's move on. Remember, what is the charge against Jesus? The charge is first that he broke the law. He did things on the Sabbath. He told other people to break the Sabbath. That's their first issue. The second issue is that when then Jesus elevates it, and now their, their issue is that he's committing blasphemy. He's claiming to be equal with God because he's claiming that he is God. And then we saw that Christ's defense was that both of his deity and his duty. This is who I am. This is what I do. Think about the difficulty of the Jew. Right now, anyone can make these claims. But now Jesus, because he loves them, is going to give proof to them. He's going to verify what he's saying. Uh, let me illustrate just this briefly of this idea of making claims. So imagine if um, I, my, my football team is the Philadelphia Eagles. And I, I like the Philadelphia Eagles, and they're struggling. Right now, one of the things they're struggling with is their offensive line. They keep on having injuries and all of these things. So imagine that I go to the owner of the Philadelphia Eagles, and I say, all right, you've got some real issues on the offensive line. Our quarterback is always running for his life. There's a problem here. We need to fix this problem. Okay, at this point, I think that the owner and I would be on the same page, that he would agree with me, he's trying different things, but now let's go to the revelation, what I'm going to say. But it just so happens, Mr. President, that I happen to be the best offensive lineman who has ever lived. That I, what are you laughing at? 
I am the greatest offensive line. You put me on center, and I'm just going to protect Jalen Hurts. Nobody's going to get to him. Now, that's a big claim. And let's also say that I'll, then my, the response that I ask of him is, I'm like, and I am willing to be that offensive lineman for $200 million a year. I'll do it. If you give me that money, I will be that offensive lineman for you. Big revelation, big response. Now, if this president is looking at me, the owner is looking at me, he might have some questions about my ability to actually do what I've just claimed. If you're listening online, I am not six foot five. Um, he's going to question that. This claim is huge. The difference one with my claim there is I'm not a great offensive lineman. But the difference is what Jesus does. He can support what he says. And so he starts doing that. Look what he says in verse 31. There's proof. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me. And I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. What is Jesus doing here? Jesus recognizes that he has claimed a big thing. He has made a big reveal, and he's demanded a big response. So he offers perfect proof. Now, these verses can seem confusing because, because what's Jesus saying? Is Jesus saying that his own testimony is worthless? Is he saying that the reason he is claiming to be God is because someone else told him he is God? He's like, well, I, my testimony by itself isn't true, um, but there's another one who does it, and I know that his testimony is right, so I'm just going to choose to believe him. This other guy said I'm God, so I guess that must be true because I trust him. That's not what's happening. Again, this idea of court within the Jewish court, for something to be verified as true, it needed more than one witness. Jesus is saying, I have another witness. But there's more truth to that. The reality is that what Jesus says is true. If he alone bore witness about himself, his testimony wouldn't be true. That's not saying that we can't trust Jesus' word. But think about it like this. If in the entire universe, out of all of everything, Jesus was the only one that agreed that he was God. If the Father did not agree that he was God, then it would be a lie. If there is not agreement even within the Trinity of who Christ's identity is, it would be a lie. But there is agreement. Jesus is basing this off of who the Father says he is. There is another who bears witness to me. He's appealing to this authority, and his testimony that he bears is true. Before we go on, there's a beauty of God's love here for us, for humanity, that I don't want us to miss. Do, do the Jews, do we deserve the proof that God is giving? Do we, have we earned this? No. We rebelled against God. There was a relationship with God when God created humanity, and we decided to rebel against him. At that, from that moment on, the only thing we deserve is wrath and condemnation. But what God is offering is justification, is salvation. And because that's what God wants, that he sent his son, because God loved the world, he sent the son to save it. What he offers is the proof. We don't deserve this. That is just a beautiful image of God's love for us. That he's willing to be the defendant. That he's willing to call forth witnesses because he knows that our response to what he's saying is all the difference in our lives. So let's look at some of these witnesses that Jesus offers. In verse 33, it says, you sent to John, and it's talking about John the Baptist. We remember that they even sent uh, to John back in John 1 verse 19. And he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. John was a witness to who Jesus is. Remember what John said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John uh, revealed who Christ was, but 
When Jesus says there is a greater witness, he's not talking about John. John is part of it. John is a good witness. But why does he tell us about John? Is all of this, is the whole reason that we believe in the deity and the identity of Christ just because other people say so? No. He says, not that the testimony that I receive is from man. I'm not basing all of my claims on John the Baptist's testimony. But why does he share John the Baptist's testimony? I say these things so that you may be saved. In God's plan of salvation, God allows us, God allows other people, other sinners, to be a testimony and a witness to other sinners. John's role was to point to Jesus, and God allows him to do that. That's an encouragement to us, but it's also an exhortation. If you've placed your faith in Jesus, you have a role to witness to the identity of Christ so that others may be saved. But he goes beyond that. He shares other witnesses. Verse 36, but the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. One of the themes that we've been seeing through the Gospel of John is the signs that Jesus has done. Signs that point to the identity of Christ. They reveal who he is. Jesus is saying, the works that I have done The works the Father has given me, these works, they bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Now, why do these works bear witness to the identity of Christ? Because only Christ could do those. The works, the miracles that Jesus did, only the Son of God, only God himself could do those works. All of his works bear witness. But what we know as we are going to progress in the Gospel of John, there is one work specifically. That there is a great work that reveals the identity of Christ. And it was the work that was completed through his death, burial, and resurrection. Where Jesus conquered death. That's the hope we're looking for. That's the hope that keeps us from condemnation. That Jesus did a great work. He didn't just come and make people whole physically. He gave them spiritual life. We saw that last week. That the life that we find in Jesus is a spiritual life that leads to physical life. It leads to eternal life in heaven with God. But the death that we have is a death of separation from God that only Christ can resolve. And he did it through his work on the cross through his death, burial, and resurrection. The works bear witness. But look at verse 37. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. The Father bears witness to Jesus. When we talk about being on trial, a great place, you know, a great defense, we talked about a great rebuttal is being able to say, I'm God. A great witness to call to the stand is God. When Jesus says, the Father himself bears witness about me, who's going to contest that? I was talking to my brother-in-law who's um, a lawyer, and I was trying to, I'm like, is there such a thing as an irrefutable witness? And and really, in our system, there's not. One of the things that you can have is a three-sealed document that really proves that goes through a whole process. But this is greater than that. No one can refute the God of the universe. Jesus is saying, look, God, my Father, says that I'm God. That's the greater witness, that we know what he says is true. But then he says, his voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you. Okay, well now we have a problem. Because you just called a star witness to the stand, but apparently we can't see him and we can't hear him. So how does that work? What kind of witness is that? No, no, there's a witness there. Take my word for it. He's saying what I said. Just just take my word for it. Well, that would seem like it wouldn't make sense, but look what Jesus says. 
The reality is we could have those things. The Jews don't have those things because they've refused it. It says, his voice you have never heard. Well, who is the voice of God? Who speaks? Who is the greatest revelation of God? Jesus. Jesus gives us his word. His form you have never seen. Who reveals the Father? Jesus. Turn quickly just to uh, John 1, verse 14. And the Word became flesh. It's talking about Jesus. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen. We have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father. When Jesus says, you have not seen him, the reason they have not seen him is because they have not seen Jesus. You do not have his word abiding in you. Why? Why are all these things? Why are they not accepting the witness of God? For or because you do not believe the one whom he has sent. Jesus is the revelation of God. Jesus is the one who reveals all of these things from God. But it continues. It says the next witness, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Again, we see that Jesus is showing all of this. This bears witness to me. Last week, Stephen talked about how we often have this problem that people see, well, there's the God of the Old Testament, and then there's the God of the New Testament, and those are separate. And then you have Old Testament ideas and the New Testament ideas. What is Jesus saying? These scriptures, the words that you have, which was the Old Testament at that point, they reveal, they bear witness about me. They were pointing forward to me. There's a confidence that we can get from that of knowing that this was always part of God's plan. Jesus wasn't a last-minute addition. He wasn't a final substitution where God's looking. I'm like, man, I tried all these other things. I tried the prophets. I tried the law. I tried all those things. It didn't work. You know what? Send in Jesus. Let's see if he figures it out. No, it was always part of the plan. The scriptures bear witness about me. This was what was happening. If you had seen the scriptures, if you had looked in them to find eternal life, you would have seen that they are talking about me. Eternal life is found in me. We saw that last week. In Christ is life. The scriptures point to Jesus. So we've, we've now looked at all these witnesses. We've looked at John the Baptist or other people. We've looked at his works. We've seen the Father himself. We see that Scripture does this. But what I want you to notice that ultimately, even though those witnesses are somewhat different, ultimately they all stem from the same source. Ultimately they are all the same witness. It's the witness of God. It's the witness of the Father. Think about it. When we talked about John the Baptist, if you look back at chapter 1, verse 6, what does it say? There was a man sent from God. And it's talking about John the Baptist. So whose witness is John the Baptist? Ultimately, it's God's witness. He sent John. The works, what did it say? The works that the Father has given me. The miracles that Jesus do. Whose witness are those? The Father's. The Father himself bears witness. That one's easy. I don't have to make the connection there. The scriptures. Whose word are the scriptures? The Father's. The principle here is that how you respond to any witness that reveals Jesus is ultimately your response to the Father. Whatever the witness is, if it's a witness that points to Jesus as God, ultimately that is a witness from God the Father. That's serious. That means we can't just explain things away and say, oh, well, you know, that's not real. I mean, that was just my neighbor saying something that God's... No. 
this is God's witness when it talks about who Jesus is. God's witness of Jesus saves those who receive it, but condemns those who refuse it. Now, we're going to do a transition here in our passage that Jesus has kind of already been doing. Up till this point, as we think of the roles in a courtroom, what role has Jesus been playing? Defendant. They're saying, you're guilty, and Jesus is saying, I'm not. But last week, Jesus kept on saying something about who he was. He said he claimed he had a different role. What role did Jesus claim? Judge. Look at the transition that's happening in these last verses, even from verse 36 going through, or even earlier with looking earlier with John. What's happening is that the transition that's happening is Jesus is starting to transition and say, I'm not actually the defendant here. I'm the judge. I'm not the one, ultimately, who will be on trial. You, ultimately, will be on trial. The Father who has sent me, His voice you have never heard, His form you have never seen, you do not have His word abiding in you. Later, verse 40, you, the, the scriptures bear witness to me. You refuse to come to me that you may have life. Jesus is demonstrating that he is the judge. He's showing them these things that they have, the issues, the roadblocks that they have. Jesus began presenting his defense, but as he progressed, Jesus has made it clear, ultimately, he is not the one on trial. Now, as I was studying this, there was this element that really came across to me that I thought was just fascinating for me. I I hope it is for you. In the courtroom, we do have one of the roles. We've talked about defendant. We've talked about judge. The other role that we have is prosecutor. Now, when we read through these things that Jesus has said, you have not received me, you do not know these things, what what we would think that he's doing is the role of prosecutor. That Jesus is saying, hey, this guy is guilty. I'm pointing to this man and he's guilty, but he's not. We're going to get in this passage to people who are prosecutors, but Jesus is not the prosecutor. Imagine this. Again, if we're in this setting of the trial, your trial, your ultimate trial has not come up yet. We talked last week, Stephen talked about that there will be a time where uh, all will be judged in the end days. But right now, your trial has not come up yet. You're out in in the lobby of the courtroom. Now imagine that the judge comes out, he comes off out of his bench, and he comes out into the lobby, and he knows everything about your case. And he comes up to you and says, listen, if you come before my seat in the condition you are in right now, I will have no choice but to declare you guilty. That will be my verdict. But there's hope. Right now, there is still something you can do that will change my verdict, but you need to do it now. That's very different from a prosecutor. What is a prosecutor's entire goal? A guilty verdict. A prosecutor isn't going to give his key evidence, his other things, to the person out in the lobby. He's going to wait until the very last minute and then do the, aha, he's guilty. That's the role of the prosecutor, to determine, to demonstrate to the judge that you're guilty. If Jesus was playing the role of prosecutor, we would have no hope because he would wait until the moment that we were before the judgment seat and say, here's all the evidence. But Jesus is the judge who meets us in the lobby and says, listen, if you come in the way that you stand right now, you will be guilty. You need to resolve this now. What is that? That's love. That's mercy. That's grace. To say, this is your problem, and if it's not fixed, the result will be condemnation because I'm not a crooked judge. So he continues then, talking about the various responses that make all the difference. See, the reality is that the same words of God either serve to save us or condemn us. The same words. 
that, that might seem confusing to us. So, so let me illustrate it in this sense. Imagine that I take a vehicle to go get inspected. And during the inspection, the mechanic comes out and his eyes are just super wide after he's looked. And he's like, you drove this here? Yeah. Oh, I don't even want to touch it. Like, and and don't, don't leave. Because the, the chances of this thing blowing up are super high. Now, let's imagine that the vehicle I took to him was a school bus. If I heed his words, what's happened? Salvation. But if I say, I'm not taking it, I I don't believe you, and I take the bus out, I fill it up with kids, and then tragedy happens, and I'm the only survivor, and so then they do an internal inquiry. They say, how did this happen? Aren't you required to have it inspected regularly? I'd say, I did. I had inspected last week. John, John down the road inspected it. So they go to John and they say, John, what happened? And he said, well, and he tells them exactly what he told me. His same words now serve as condemnation. Do you see that the same words, the witness of God, the witness of God serves as salvation for, you, for those who receive it. If you receive the warning from God, if you receive the testimony, it's salvation. But if you take those words and you refuse them, condemnation. We told you, but you did nothing about it. Let's look at verse 41. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come to my father in my father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? We're just going to go through this real quickly. When Jesus says, I do not receive glory from people, what Jesus is saying is that he refuses to submit God's plan to man's glory. If Jesus wanted just to have glory, he could do things differently. He could have uh, have submitted his plan to the Jewish plan of saying, you know what, I'll do miracles, but I'll follow your system. I'll do it your way. He would have received glory. In fact, we've seen in different places in John, back in John 2, where people believed him, and uh, we'll see it in John 6, that people see his signs and they want to make him king according to their plans. Well, that's glory. I, I think that being made king would be probably a way of glorifying someone, but Jesus doesn't do that. Why? That's not the plan. He doesn't submit his plan to, to them. And he says, I know that you do not have the love of God within you. Again, he's warning them. How does he know that? Because they're not responding to Jesus as God. They're not treating him as God. And that's how Jesus knows that they do not have the love of God. Because how they respond to Jesus is how they respond to God. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. That's a great indictment. Think about it. Jesus comes in the name of God, and they refuse him. That's bad by itself. It's bad because they claim to love God, the Father, while hating God the Son. But it gets worse. Not only do they refuse the Son, who truly was sent from the Father and is truly God, not only do they refuse Him, but they receive others who are not from God. Now, if we would think about this, how could this ever happen? Why would people refuse God who comes in in the name of God, Jesus there, but they receive others? Is it because others have more proof? Is it because others have more power? No. The only thing that others have is a more palatable message. They have something that our itching ears want to hear. Why do we refuse the Son of God and receive others? Because I like this message more. This message doesn't say I'm guilty. This message doesn't say that there's condemnation. That's way better. This this message says I'm not helpless. I can fix this myself. They refuse God, though. If another comes, you will receive him. The reality, though, is that there are no other ways. Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This isn't Jesus being selfish. This is the reality. This is God's love that he's telling you, you've got to stop trusting those other things. If you come before the judgment seat in that condition, you will be condemned. Fix it. I'm your hope. 
principle for us is that seeking the glory of God does mean abandoning the glory of man. You're not going to be able to do both. You can't go on opposite pathways at the same time. Seek the glory of God, which is found in Jesus. And now in the last verses, we see the accuser. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? See, Jesus doesn't have to do the accusations because as we've seen already in John, we already stand accused. We already stand condemned. That is our position. This judge is omniscient. He already knows all of these things. But look what, they, what it says. The one who accuses you, and this is specifically talking to the Jews, but there's some implications for us as well. The one that has is Moses on whom you have set your hope. What does that mean? The Jews are looking that the solution, the way they are being made whole is through Moses. It's through his law. But was the law meant to save? The law could never save. We see that in Hebrews. The law reveals your brokenness and points to Jesus. It says that Jesus is the one who saves. But where is the hope of the Jews? On Moses. But this is the harsh reality. Anything, anything you place your hope in for salvation that is not Jesus will ultimately be your condemnation. If you think that your hope of salvation is your own works, then when you stand before the throne and give that as your reason for justification, it will condemn you. If you think it's your attendance at church, if it's th you think it's another pathway, another God, ultimately it will condemn you. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? The solution, the, the reality of this trial is that the verdict, there's only two verdicts. There's only two responses. You either receive it or you refuse it. You either receive life or you receive condemnation. That seems harsh, but when the reality is that Christ is the one who offers this because of the work he did, it's love. What do we do now? Each of you the reality is, maybe not at this point because of your faith in Jesus, but all of us started in a position of guilt. The judge has spoken. He has told us our condition. But just because you are guilty does not mean you must be condemned. God's witness of Jesus saves those who receive it, but condemns those who refuse him. There's another option. Consider Christ's roles in the courtroom. He started as the defendant. Jesus revealed his identity. He is God. He is the giver of life. He is the judge of the living and dead. And he is the one who can make the broken whole. He's validated his claim. The God of the universe has borne witness to the identity of Jesus. Jesus has told us who he is. And he's also given us the response. The most important question I can ask is how do, you how do you respond in light of who Jesus is? Do you refuse it or do you receive it? Why is this the most important question? Because Jesus is not just the defendant, he is also the judge. How we respond determines the verdict. How we come before the throne, how we come before the judgment seat makes all the difference. So what is our response? Repent. If you were thinking that these are the things that saved you, if you're placing your hope in other things, repent from them. It is only Christ who can save you. Believe in him because he took our judgment. The payment, the cost was laid on him. He bore my sin on the cross. The reason that still Jesus is not a crooked judge and is pardoning people who are guilty is because he already paid the price. Stephen talked about that last week. It's so fitting for the judge, for Jesus to be the judge, because he bore our judgment. But you must receive it. 
you must respond with belief. But if you do, Jesus will take on a third role in the courtroom that is unique for you. It is the role of advocate. It is the role of your defense. Where now, Jesus, while you come before the judgment seat, Jesus, the judge, gets down off the stand and says, I will speak for him. I will offer a defense for him. I've paid the price. 1 John 2, 1 through 2 says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. This is offered to you. He's willing to be your advocate. But it requires that you respond correctly. Respond by repenting and placing your faith in Christ alone. The last thing I want to say as the worship team comes up, though, is that there is also an application for us as believers. See, we've seen in this three-part, we see that Jesus is our hope of wholeness. Look to Jesus as we continue in life. He has made us whole. Let him be your hope. We saw in part two that we are called to honor Jesus as God. Are you? But even here in part three, what we can see is we can have confidence. God's sovereign plan and witness, this is how it was meant to be. All of scripture reveals this. We can praise him. We can be overwhelmed that God saves us because he loves us, that he gives us these opportunities, that he meets us in the lobby and told us our condition so that we could have a solution before we come to the final trial. But we also understand that we have a responsibility. We looked at John. John the Baptist bore witness. Not that that witness is what proved the identity of Christ, but why? So that others may be saved. That's the responsibility that we have. It said that John was a lamp, a shining light. That's what Matthew 5, 14 says. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That is our responsibility, to bear witness to God. Because the reality is that God's witness of Jesus saves those who receive it, but condemns those who refuse him.